Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, it looks like we're going to be able to finish up the um, analysis of the term, the Son of God, as we compare that term, the Son of God, with the term the Son of Man. And again, we're talking, emphasizing the and Son, meaning Jesus Christ, as opposed to in the Old Testament, for instance, um, some of the Old Testament writers would be referred to by God as Son of Man, do so and so. Son of Man, write this. And of course, those are lowercase, and it's referring to Ezekiel or whomever is being addressed by God at that point. But we're looking at Jesus Christ and the two key terms that are used to identify him, both being about Jesus but having very significantly different meanings when looked at in context. And we have been doing that in this current teaching series entitled Important Prophecy Terms, and we are comparing and contrasting seven sets of terms. Uh, The current one, number one in your worksheet, which, of course, you can uh, get by downloading it from the station website here, Uh, the Son of God compared and contrasted with the Son of Man. Then we're going to look at others like the Day of Christ compared with the Day of the Lord. Very different, very different. We need to understand that. Uh, The Gospel of the Kingdom compared to the Gospel of Grace, two totally different Gospels uh, that you can easily miss if you don't know the difference between these. So, that's why we're going, and I've said this several times already, because I'm excited. I'm, I'm looking forward to our next teaching series after we finish these seven sets of terms. Um, actually, the seven sets of terms study was brought about as I was preparing to look at the 30 prophetic events that are getting ready to kick off between now and taking us all the way through eternity, the end of um, the book of Revelation. When, which uh, is a point in time when Hades and death are thrown into the lake of fire along with Satan, and we go back to a perfect world, a perfect state of existence. And that involves different groups of people. I'm just excited about talking about those events leading up to that, and I've tried to put them in chronological sequence as best I can. But I found as I went through that and started preparing that uh, teaching series that there were several sets of terms, and I've got seven of them here, that if we did not, as a listening audience, did not have a reasonable grasp, a reasonable understanding of what the terms meant, we would lose a lot of the impact of what God is wanting us to know uh, about and through the study of these um, uh, future, uh, yet future prophetic events that will uh, bring about the, the, the final revelation of Jesus to the world and then the final consummation of the ages uh, with the uh, creation of the perfect state again, which is what we had back at the beginning of the Bible, didn't we, in Genesis, 
where there was no sin. It was a perfect state. Well, we will once again find that. And um, I believe that's going to kick off uh, quickly. We don't know when. We don't know the day or the hour. We're told we can know the season uh, of the Lord's coming for the church, which kicks off everything. I believe that's the prophetic event that kicks off everything. Uh, because the church has to be taken out of the way. The righteous believers in Jesus Christ as the Son of God have to be taken out of the way so that God can turn his attention back to unbelieving Israel and to an unbelieving world to bring about the fulfillment of all of his Old Testament promises and his Old Testament covenants. And he is a covenant-keeping God. Amen. Thank you, God that he is a covenant-keeping God because he made a covenant with you and me, and it's called salvation. And if God uh, can be shown in his Old Testament covenants to be uh, one who does not honor his covenants, that breaks his covenants, then I have to have some concern about my salvation. But as it is, through a study, a literal study of God's word, I know that he is a covenant-keeping God and in ways that baffle me as a human being because I think, God, how can you possibly keep a covenant with people who who are so hard-headedly dead set against belief in you? Why do you keep after him? Well, it's because he's a covenant-keeping God, and he will fulfill all of his glorious covenants. And it's exciting to study those, even though a lot of them have nothing to do with me, have nothing to do with you as members of the church. Uh, it's all part of God's plan, and we are part of God's household. We are sons and daughters of the living God through our faith in Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know all this because in some form or fashion, we're going to be related to it. You know, when we come back with Jesus at his second coming, as the church comes back with him, we go up with him at the rapture as his uh, bride. We come back with him at his second coming as his wife. And it says in Revelation chapter 2, you can go there, Revelation chapter 2, verse, I believe it's 27 and 28, you can go there and see where we will rule and reign. We will rule and reign over the earth with Jesus, uh, doing his will across the earth. So I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that. So we've got a lot to look forward to. But there are key terms, back to our uh, focus here, there are key terms that I believe we need to have a, a good grasp of, and I think the most important term is the Son of God as compared to the Son of Man. And we've been spending the last number of programs going over the Son of God, and we're going to finish that up today as we go into the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew, and we're going to take one last look at, a, at a, another perspective on the Son of God versus the Son of Man. And we're going to do that by going to the point in time of Jesus' uh, trial, um, uh, subsequent to his um, crucifixion, his uh, burial, and his glorious resurrection. And that is in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we're talking about the um, council is... Uh, falsely accusing Jesus of a number of things. I mean, they violated all of the procedural laws of Rome, all the procedural laws of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and Judaic law, all of this just so they could falsely trap Jesus into blasphemy. And, of course, according to uh, Judaic law, blasphemy 
claiming your God is uh, punishable by death. So they're doing anything they can to bring this accusation on him. And of course they do, falsely, but nevertheless. And during the um, trial, I want to read a sequence here. And it's in Matthew chapter 26. And let's look at verses um, 63 and 64. You can see those on your worksheet. Uh, They're at the very bottom of um, point number one, the Son of God. Verse 63, but Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. So he is claiming to be the Son of God, They're wanting him now to profess it in front of them so that they can charge him with blasphemy because they certainly do not believe he is. And, of course, you recall earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 16, when Jesus had sent his apostles out all over Israel to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, that I am the Son of God and I'm here to set up the kingdom. And they came back and told Jesus in Matthew 16 that he is anyone, they believe he's anyone but the Son of God. And that's when he changed his gospel message, his ministry from the gospel of the kingdom, offering the kingdom to Israel, an earthly kingdom, to offering the gospel of grace, which would be the creation of the church, which is what we've been in for the last 2,000 years. And that will terminate with the rapture of the church when he takes the church back to to heaven so that he can turn his complete focus on what's called the earth dwellers, the Israelites and the and the Gentiles on the earth who are refusing to accept him, and he takes them through that horrible tribulation period. So again, verse 63, let me read it again because I wanted to, to, to uh, then bring it right into verse 64 and show you the contrast. But Jesus kept silent, 63, Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God, Verse 64, Jesus said to him, to the high priest, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter or from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. So you can see the use of the Son of God. Are you the Son of God? And in verse 63, Jesus tells the high priest and the whole council, you've said it yourself. You've said the Son of God, but you don't believe it. You do not believe that I am truly the Son of God. You believe that I am that guy that has been bothering you and causing you trouble, and my apostles have been causing you all this trouble for these three and a half years, and you believe that I am the son of Joseph and Mary, and nothing more than that that I am somebody that's coming here to try to usurp the throne, claim that I'm the king of Israel, and that is um, totally against what you want. You want to retain your power. You want to retain your earthly influence. You don't want Rome to be upset and have to come in here and take charge of things, because if they do, they will take our power away from us. We don't want to lose our power, so we want to get rid of you as a usurper to the throne of Israel to one who is blasphemously saying, you are the Son of God. We can't believe that you would even say that. So those are my words, but that's basically what they're saying. 
And so what Jesus is telling them is, yes, I am the son of God, but you, you have disbelieved. Consequently, as a consequence of your unbelief, you will see the son of man. This is the judgment side of Jesus. The son of God is the rewarding salvation side of Jesus. The son of man, they don't believe him as being the son of God. He's the son of a man. Therefore, this is the judging side of Jesus. And you're going to see the judging side of me as I sit. And when you sit on a throne, uh, it's you know that's a position of power. It's a position of authority. It's a position from which one judges people. So they're seeing this situation where Jesus is going to be their judge, and that's not going to be a good judgment. And he says, that's the way you're going to see me, sitting in a power of authority, judging you. And I'm going to come. I'm actually going to come back, and I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to come on the clouds of heaven. And this is Matthew 26, and if you go back to Matthew 24, and just for clarification, it's not in your worksheet, but we've been over it uh, many times. If you go back to Matthew chapter 24 in your Bible and look quickly at verse 30, Matthew 24, verse 30, and this is a very clear description of the second coming of Christ, and it says in Matthew 24, verse 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So in Matthew 26, when he is being Jesus is being questioned by the high priest, he refers back to that statement. It's, tell, it's, it's basically saying, I am going to physically come back at a future time this, of course, is 2,000 years ago. But at a future time, at the end of the age, I will come back to the earth and I will judge you. And that's what you, Mr. High Priest, you, Mr. Council members, because of your unbelief, that's what you have to look forward to. And that's what he says. From hereafter, verse 64, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. So that's that's the future they have to look forward to. So you see the 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 difference here, hopefully, of verse sixty three, Christ the Son of God, and verse sixty four, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Because while he rightly is the Son of God, the unbelievers see him as the Son of Man, the unbeliever. So I wanted to take just a moment to finish up our uh, discussion on the Son of God and the Scriptures here and go to one other place, and that is in the book of Acts. So Matthew, where we are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and go to Acts chapter 7. And this is that marvelous uh, review that the, uh, the martyr Stephen gives to the same council. This is the same council that had Jesus in front of them and uh, asked him if he was the son of God. So now Stephen, who is now a member of the church for his belief in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, because this is after his um, death, burial, and resurrection, he goes through this wonderful review of Jewish history. And if you have a chance, um, 
read Acts chapter 7 for a good overview of the history of Israel. But we want to go to Acts chapter 7, and we want to go to 51, verse 51. And it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, at Stephen. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he, Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing, not sitting, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, in other words, to welcome him. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. So the point I want to use here to wrap it up is while he's saying the Son of Man, he's doing it to identify who they believe Jesus is. But he's obviously, just as the demons saw Jesus as the Son of God, they knew him from the power position. Um, Stephen recognizes Jesus as the Son of God, but he's using the term Son of Man because Jesus had told them, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. So hopefully you can see the differences here between the Son of um, God and the Son of Man because we want to take the next uh, few programs and specifically focus on passages that show us the use of the term son of man. We've, we've only gone over those passages where it uh, meshes with the term son of God in the same verse or the same passage to um, help, help us understand the term son of God. But now we want to focus on just the son of man and see what that means. Because again, if we can understand the difference of when the term the Son of God is used and what is meant there, what the who the audience is, what the subject is, and what the purpose is of whatever's being spoken of. Um, it means one thing with the Son of God, and we see something quite different with the Son of Man. The Son of God comes to reward with salvation and rewards. The Son of Man comes to judge you for your sins. And that's not something the church will ever see. So we never see him. We're never related to the Son of Man, just the Son of God. All right, so next in our next program, we're going to look at point number one and, and look at the Son of Man perspective. Looking forward to that. But now we want to transition over to our Q&A time, as we always do, and we want to uh, continue with our, uh, quote-unquote, our mini-teaching series. It's actually a question from Rich in Indian Springs about the working of the Holy Spirit during the tribulation period. And of course, if you've been with us for a while, you know that um, in subsequent or in uh, previous programs, we have looked at the working of God in the life of man, the working of Jesus in the pre-incarnate form as the angel of God, 
angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and then Jesus in his ministry, and then the Holy Spirit. And now we've transitioned specifically to the period of time called the Tribulation, the capital T Tribulation, the seven-year period, and looking at the working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the unbelievers who were on the earth um, during the Tribulation. Because if they're human beings, they have free will. And up to this point, they have had the free will to deny Jesus, to deny God, to deny the Holy Spirit, but there are some terrible things that are taking place through the seals and the trumpets and ultimately with the bowls, the bowl judgments we learn about in Revelation that are bringing about some horrifically bad circumstances and events on the earth, and it usually takes bad circumstances (laughs) uh, to get hard-headed people to recognize that, hey, there's something greater out there than what I'm seeing, and that's when their hearts open up to the possible um, drawing by the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're talking about here. And at the end of our last program, we talked about how during the tribulation period, because the church is out of the way, it's gone to to heaven, waiting to come back with Jesus at his second coming, and that God in his mercy has now re-offered the gospel of the kingdom which had been offered all through the Old Testament and would be fulfilled ultimately with the first coming of Christ if the Jews had recognized him. But because they didn't, it was put on hold. It was postponed until a future time, and that future time is the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back to set up that kingdom. So because um, the focus is now back on Israel, The focus is now back on the gospel of the kingdom. The manifestation, if you will, of the Holy Spirit is now back to how it was done, how he performed, how he interacted with people, he being the Holy Spirit, during the the Old Testament will now be done again during the tribulation. So to help us understand what all that means, we're going to look at some Old Testament passages Um, to help us understand how the Holy Spirit manifested himself with people in Old Testament times. So the first place I'd like to go is one of the most clear in all of the Old Testament, and that is in the book of 1 Samuel. You have two books, 1 and 2 Samuel, and then they lead into 1 and 2 Kings. So if you start uh, towards the beginning of your Bible and start thumbing through there, oh, about, I don't know, a quarter of the way into your Bible, you'll see Samuel and Kings. We want to start out with 1 Samuel. We want to go to chapter 16. Chapter 16, and this has to do with the first king of Israel, which is King Saul, which was a a very problematic king that uh, came from the wrong tribe and became king for the wrong reasons. And uh, that's, of course, a um, subject for another study. But we're, we're contrasting now the Holy Spirit working with King Saul and then the next king, which is King David. So in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we want to go down to verses 13 and 14. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. And it says, Then Samuel, and again, Samuel was a prophet, and he was used by God to ordain through the anointing with oil. Um, the kings. So he did that with with Saul, and now we, we see here 
in First Samuel sixteen thirteen. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. So this is Samuel in Bethlehem with David and his family. And in front of his whole family, Samuel anoints David with the oil, uh, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse Samuel thir- uh, sixteen thirteen, The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now we see the Holy Spirit coming on David, coming on David mightily as really the chosen king of Israel, chosen by God. Um, Saul was allowed to be king because the Israelites wanted a king. They didn't want God to be their king. And they wanted a man that would lead him into battle. So God gave him a man that was taller than anybody else, better looking than anybody else, but turned out to be a failure. Um, and then he brings David uh, to the kingship. So here he's been anointed with the oil. He's been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 14. Here's the key. Verse 14, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And if you go back earlier in the in the book of 1 Samuel, you'll see where the Holy Spirit came on Saul because he was the king. God was allowing Saul to, to be good, to be righteous, but it was a choice that Saul was going to have to make. And for a period of time, Saul was righteous, and the Holy Spirit came on him and dwelt with him, on him, for a period of time, but then Saul turned his back on God. Saul turned from from righteousness to unrighteousness, and therefore the Holy Spirit left him. So look at verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So the Holy Spirit came on you, but would leave you if you turn from righteousness to iniquity, and we want to explore that in a number of um, verses here in the Old Testament, because I think it's very important that we understand how the Holy Spirit manifested Himself um, before the church and then after the church, which would be the tribulation period. So, if the Holy Spirit came on David and the Holy Spirit left Saul, do you think that was a question in David's mind as well as he saw? Uh, this happened, that the Holy Spirit left Saul. So let's go to the Psalms, and David wrote a number of the Psalms, as you know, and let's go to Psalm 51, and this is one uh, that was right around uh, the time when when David was, if you will, um, doing some rather unrighteous things in his life, um, and specifically with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And he prays a prayer to God, and that's what differentiated David from Saul, was that he had a heart after God, uh, David did. And we see that specifically here in Psalm 51, and I want to go directly to verse 11. It says in Psalm 51, verse 11, Do not cast me away from your presence. This is David praying to God. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So he is aware that the Holy Spirit can come on you and leave you 
if you turn from righteousness to iniquity. And he has done some, some, uh, performed some iniquity here. And he's praying to God, you know, for forgiveness. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So we will continue in these Old Testament passages and build on this point with David in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.